0: Hello, this is Karen Swallow-Pryor, author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. You're listening to Pints with Jack.
1: He made a strong resolution, defying in advance all changes of mood that he would faithfully carry out the journey to meddle if it could be done. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 16, In the Heights, Out of the Silent Planet, Chapters 14 and 15. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints for Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm David, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Andrew and Matt. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. So, for the last couple of recordings, we've only done one chapter per episode, but I'm hoping that today we'll pick up the pace a little bit and get two done, chapters 14 and 15. And in these chapters, Ransom is going to journey to the Highlands, Hence today's episode title, named after the 2021 movie musical In the Heights. And there he comes face to face with something that he has feared ever since he was abducted, a sawn. So with the warning that Batesian rigidity is in full force today <laughs> to make sure that we get through both chapters, gentlemen, how are you doing?
0: Well, first, I think we'll be able to. This is a unique chapter where we don't need to, there's not as many f- minutia details we need to go through but there's some powerful themes. And so I think we're going to have an incredible discussion, Uh, but I think by the nature of these two chapters, we will be able to uh, get to it. And so I'm ready for Bates and rigidity and (laughs) I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to this. This is chapter 14. I'm really excited.
1: I'm just going to point out that you spent 30 seconds to a minute there saying that we're going to get through it in time. (laughs) Get ready for my monologues,
0: man. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm stoked for chapter fourteen. I'm I'm coming in hot this week.
2: All right. Well, I'm feeling a little under the weather. My wife and I both woke up with a sore throat yesterday, and just feeling a little just a little low today, but not too bad. And I think some of that is just screw tape knowing that I get to preach about the resurrection, John chapter eleven, on Sunday. So mm. uh, we will not let him uh, mess with me, and we will make our
1: way to to Mel Delorn if it can be done. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely lots of bugs going around at the moment. My wife has been sick. My son has been sick. So far, I have remained untouched, but I'm now pretty exhausted from... A month worth of job search yeah i will be making my decision next week so i've got a couple of offers okay. so i will then be gamefully employed again and no longer a rudderless hippie
0: <laughs> surprised you didn't like grow out yeah. your beard or do some sort of physical <laughs> manifestation of this period
1: <laughs> that's as far as this beard goes out i'll probably shave my beard off at the end of this uh, to uh, to mark the new stage but what are we drinking today
0: one of Andrew's gifts again. I think we're probably down to the last one that we all overlap. And if you guys remember the last time we had that really white one, clear one, I mean, it was, wow, well, it wasn't very great according to Andrew. I didn't mind it for a like a dessert type of scotch, to be honest. But mm-hmm. this one was similar. It wasn't quite <laughs> the shade of just clear, clearness, but it still was pretty clear. So I'm intrigued. Now I have an answered the question. It's a Fetter Cairn 12 year.
1: Fetter Cairn. That one. What about you, David? I will be joining Matt in that. Uh, but Andrew, I see a, a very healthy-looking concoction in front of you. Yeah, it's uh, two
2: doses of Walmart um, uh, emergency and a uh, LaCroix limoncello.
0: And two <laughs> shots of vodka or something?
1: I was going to say, you should add add a little bit of gin and then have uh, an emergentini. Oh, I'll be right back.
0: (laughs) Did you hear, like, uh, Jack used to say that the alcohol would kill the virus? I mean, that was an actual belief back then. So what are you doing without the Mm. alcohol in the mixer?
2: Well, I I may just have to go get some Hendrick gin and and throw it in. (laughs) So, well, what language are we cheersing
1: in? We are cheersing today in Romanian. uh, And so it's Norok. Norok. But we're not actually going to be toasting a patron supporter because Pastor Michael, uh, a friend and a local listener, he sent me a text this week telling me that one of his friends has just had a son and has named this son Ransom Lewis. So we have to toast this child. I expect <laughs> uh-huh. greatness. Yes. Well, to Pastor Michael and
2: to his friend and especially to his son, Ransom Lewis, we, uh, we pray you God's health and uh, and prosperity. And may you be as, as courageous as Ransom was and as uh, as prolific as Lewis. So Norok. 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 I'm getting floral notes <laughs> <laughs>
1: from my orange emergency.
0: This one's a little harsh on the throat.
1: I like it. I'm, I'm not sure if it's just because uh, everyone around me has been sick. So I'm starting to uh, wonder if my throat is feeling a little scratchy but this clears it out easily
0: <laughs> oh yeah that's a good way to put that good but david so i'm listening i was listening to this podcast on lvmh that's louis Vuitton moët hennessy so renard bernard he's a 200 billionaire now surpassing elon musk his company lvmh owns 70% of the luxury market anyways he did a 3 hour on his whole journey from 15 million dollar family inheritance to 200 billion in like 30, 30 years the most incredible rides. But anyway,s they cheers in the beginning because it's Paris, French, santé and I was like boom I know what, I that, know what that means
1: <laughs> I'm not going to argue with a billionaire <laughs> <laughs> but I am going to read you my 100 word summary of the story so far Elwyn Ransom is abducted by two men and taken to the planet Malacandra in order to be given to a race of aliens called the Sorns. However, upon landing, they are attacked by an aquatic creature, and he escapes in the confusion. Ransom then encounters another race of inhabitants, the Hrosa, and he stays with them for some time. He helps them slay the water monster, only for one of their number to be shot by Ransom's abductors. Our protagonist is then sent from the scene to seek an audience with the mysterious ruler of the planet, known as Oyasa. So, sent on his way by Huynh, the surviving cross from his boat, uh, Ransom heads to Meldalorn. How's he feeling as he heads out? When
0: I put this in here, I put like, I, and I did this intentionally to capitalize, the fear returns. <laughs> you know, we we just gotten a little bit complacent. Maybe complacent is not a word, but comfortable in the setting with Horasa, And now you see this fear returning. I mean, there's obviously an intensity to the shooting that was just happening. So he's just, there's an escape going on. Uh, but then there's this unknown, this new forest, where is he's going? All this thoughts was entering into his brain. I mean, it was just a whirlwind of emotions, let's just say.
2: Yeah, there's certainly some fear. And here he is running through the wood again, uh, afraid again of being shot or attacked by uh, by his, his planet mates. I got just a, the quickest note of Dante, which begins in the middle of the life in a dark wood wandering. So here is Ransom having, in some ways, a Dantean moment. I feel
0: like you should have Andrew join you for that conversation. I feel like that would be a fantastic three-way interview with, with Dr. Baxter, who wrote a book on divine comedy. Ah,
2: no, no. David will be fine for that. So anyway, Andrew, you would say. My Dante saying. chops are not the, not the best. Batesian rigidity. <laughs> but the quote of the week actually comes from the end of the first chapter, where despite his moods, he kind of firms his faith and his resolve. He makes a strong resolution, defying in advance all changes of mood uh, that he would faithfully carry out out the journey to Meldolorn, which reminds me um, very much, I just taught it last week, of mere Christianity, which Mm -hmm. would come just two or three years after this. He says, now faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For the moods will change, and consequently, one must train the habit of faith and tell the moods where to get off. And so here's uh, Ransom
1: kind of exercising some faith. Mm. And he's got a lot of fears that are attacking him as he's traveling. He's scared of Western divine. He's reasonably confident that they want to take him alive. But, you know, still, there's people that just shot one of his best friends. And, uh, and he knows that they're after him. And the route that he's been told to take to Meldelon, he knows he's going into Sorn Territory. And this is what he's been scared of ever since he heard, first heard the name Saun. And he's also worried about this Oyasa that he's going to visit. Is this Oyasa good? Is this just uh, a super sawn that sort of sits above the others?
0: Well, you know, when I first started reading this, a number of questions came to my mind. And I am a little bit curious to your guys' thoughts, but then I do have some answers. You know, As I'm reading this, and there's this fear. You know, he's going on this journey and I started asking myself what is the fear why do we have the fear is this fear from satan how do we combat it like these were questions that I was having as he's going on the journey and I was thinking to myself Andrew you I actually had in here this this section itself and particularly this this section we're reading right now the wisdom that lewis is imparting on us that I think are honestly universal and timeless truths that we can carry into our own spiritual journey are incredible. And the faith one, I had that exact quote. I didn't remember (laughs) the actual words, So I did my paraphrasing of faith (laughs) is holding on into the darkness, what we knew to be true in the light. But the sentence that I thought mimicked that was... But all the time, the old resolution, taking when he could still think, was driving him up the road. I mean, that is another way of saying those exact same things. When he could still think, when the irrational fear wasn't there, he made a resolution and he stuck to it. He held on to it. And then I also put here, in our spiritual journeys, when we feel called by God and we go into this unknown, which he was called to do this by the Eldil, and he's going into the unknown, When we have these fears, I've always had a belief that truth is a really important way to combat fear. And you see him doing this. Notice that he's listening off in his head. Okay, the the Harasa believe that the Eldil are good and it's not this evil monster. And they sent me on this journey and I have no reason to believe that they would send me astray. And everything to this point has led me up to it. And he even says at one point, everything I've believed so far has been wrong. So why wouldn't this be the case? Like he's actually doing a very good tactic of recognizing the fear and combating it with truth. And so I thought I had in their faith, which you already brought up, truth. But then I also had the word, and this could be related to obedience, but passionless surrender. This is a word that was brought to me in a prayer group I'm doing, and I really love this. Like passionless surrender Mm -hmm. to like a, a rule of life is what they use it in here. But here I would use it in the obedience. And he says he was determined henceforward, despite his fear, to obey the Harasa or the eldilla. So he had made this resolution to just mm-hmm. obey. Yeah. You know, the very final thing I put in then I'll let you guys talk, sorry, is you can have the obedience. You can have the faith. You can have the combating with truth. These are all like eight self agency control things that we can do in these moments. But then I put grace because I did love in this section, how it says, meanwhile, he felt remarkably well, though greatly chast, chaste- chasten-, chasten chastened, 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 Yeah, Thank you. In mind. And I just thought, you know, this was another example of how there's actually an outside force that is actually helping him despite these fears. He felt remarkably well. And so we need Mm -hmm. grace on our journey. So I just thought this whole little section was packed with so much truth of what we can take from this.
1: Mm. While he's ascending, it's almost like he can hear a voice asking him, Why should your heart not dance? Wouldn't you agree, Andrew? (laughs)
0: Uh, I did want to drink.
1: Yes. And he says, my
2: heart shall drink, or my heart shall dance, is what he says.
0: (laughs) I love, David, how we can use this to our advantage whenever we want to sip.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I think somewhere, um, gosh, I I wish I could pull it up. Um, Lewis says something like, obedience brings light, and disobedience just brings nothing, or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of clear light of accepted duty. And he also is physically getting closer to the place where the spiritual force of good, um, we later find out, is. And so there's this a geographical enlightenment that's coming to him, too. I love how he gets attacked along the way because Lewis will use this uh, at the very beginning of Paralandra. When the Lewis character is walking to Ransom's hut, uh, he gets attacked by the enemy and attacked by doubt uh, several times. So it's a it's a prequel to
1: that episode. There were a couple of things that made me chuckle in this section. Matt, you already mentioned one of them, the fact that Ransom realized that he had followed his own path thus far and it had gone really, really badly. So he's just going to obey at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, another one was the fact that he said this resolution, this resolution to go to Meldalorn, come what may, uh, it seemed to him all the more certainly right because he had the deepest misgivings about that journey. <laughs> it's like, I really don't want to do this. Yeah. So this is probably yeah. what I should do. Yeah. That's
2: that. Sometimes a really good, a really good way you, uh, signpost along the way. I was going to say,
0: isn't isn't this the most remarkable section you have read so far in this book of our own? Like this applies to our spiritual journey so perfectly. What a great truth when you get to the point where you realize, you know, a lot of my perverted desires are probably leading me astray. So if I feel like I really want something and desire it pretty strongly, I might want to check that desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, against the obedience of God. Like these are just great things when we realize, you know, the, the decisions I've been making in my life haven't really worked out. This was exactly what Jonathan Rumi from The Chosen, I listened to him with Bishop Barron a week ago, said with his. In 2019, 2020, he got on his knees. He had like $200 to his name, and he just gave his life over to Christ. Next thing you know, The Chosen and stuff, it's like it's just not working.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I think there's just a lot of wisdom to this this section. Really do.
2: Well, and and uh, Lewis also translates mood as feelings, and so it's. I don't think he's saying one should one should steer one's life with one's head rather than one's changing emotions because he's a man or because he's a rationalist. I think that that's really uh, really the wise way. Uh, in the section we'll talk about next, there's this phrase that I just love. He says, "In the clear light of accepted duty, he felt fear indeed." but with it, a sober sense of confidence in himself and in the world, and even an element of pleasure. And so there is an element of pleasure in saying, yes, the clear light of accepted duty. I'm going to do what I know that I, that I must. And there's, there's always something to, when I've been putting off a you know, a a reading assignment or whatever, it's always something to, after I get over the struggle of procrastination, just settling down and saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give myself to this task. There is even an almost an instant reward from the Lord sometimes
1: um, for, for doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And Ransom finds that out too. Yeah. And ultimately Ransom throughout all of these fears, he sticks to his guns and he just keeps going. I will just mention before we leave this section though, that he has a, a vision, so to speak. He, he imagines what the society of Malachandra might actually be like. And it's that really odd mix of uh, goodness Uh, cruelty and superstition layered on top Mm -hmm. Uh, his big fear is about oyasa because he knows that oyasa is 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 able to shed the the blood of uh, a canal and Mm -hmm. he says he's got this fear of something alien cold intelligence superhuman in power and subhuman in cruelty and he imagines that perhaps that you have the Hrosa at the bottom of, of the society, so to speak, um, who are all good. And then you've got the intellectual superiors who are the swans And then on top of that, you have just this superstition this, and darkness ruling everything. And he's got this line, he says, uh, overtopping all some dark superstition, which scientific intellect, helpless against the revenge of the emotional depths it had ignored... So this is a problem with that kind of scientism. It's ignoring something and it can't speak to it. So superstition then comes in. Had neither the will nor the power to remove a mumbo jumbo. Mm. But Ransom pushes all of those fears aside and he starts ascending to the heights. Uh, he's looking for the Tower of Orgrey, uh, with the promise that Orgray would help him. And he compares this trip with how he originally felt when he first was navigating his way through Malacandra. How are things different now? Well, he knows so much more, but before we go to the differences, it just struck me that
2: he's here he is making this ascent, and he's given this invitation to obedience, and he accepts it, which is the very opposite of what happens to Orwell, <laughs> until we have faces, right? Go ahead and have your drinks. Um, but she's going up the mountain, and-
0: I already had to pour a second one.
2: Yeah, Good. Why should your heart not dance? And she says, no, 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 right? And here's Ransom saying yes. And and that, in some ways, is one of the differences. It's He's making the journey by means of governed fear, right? He had fear the first time, but now he has governed fear. He also has a lot more evidence that the world is basically good, right? Even the grass will feed him. He won't starve to death. He won't die of thirst. Um, and every creature that he's met so far has been good to him.
1: Mm. And he refers to that former time, Uh, He said, then all had been whimpering, unanalyzed, self-nourishing, self-consuming dismay. And this is the line that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Now, in the clear light of accepted duty, he felt fear indeed, but with it, a sober sense of confidence in himself and in the world and even an element of pleasure. Mm -hmm. And he compares it to somebody on a sinking ship versus someone on a bolting horse. It's like he still has agency here. Yeah. No, that's nicely observed.
2: That's good
0: and that kind of fits with what I was saying earlier of the faith, the obedience, the truth, like there's an agency side to it, but then there's also a surrendering side to grace. And I feel like there's that blend of agency on the journey, but then also God's grace. Did you feel like in this that did you, not feel like, but did you guys get the, the hearkening back to kind of both the feeding of the 5,000, but then also At the same time, the sending of the 72, is that what it is? Disciples out or sending something disciples with like no provisions. Like I was thinking to myself this whole time, he had no provision on this. He's going on this journey. He doesn't know if this is going to be days and days. He doesn't have food in a pack. He doesn't have water. And so the, the, at the journey, there's enough, there's food provided for him. It talks about him uh, sitting down and eating the ground stuff that that we learned about before. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The water nourished him. And then it even said he had enough and packs them away. That's what got me the feeding the 5,000. It's like, not only did he not have anything with him, there was so much plentiful that he was able to pack his pockets afterwards. Yeah. And so I'm literally thinking to myself, this guy's going into the complete unknown with yes, some more. um, What did you say, uh, Andrew? Like a a journey, a guided journey or something. He had this, this used a really good term a second ago that I already forgot, but um, glad it made an impact. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll re listen to this episode and I'll be like, that's what Andrew said. That was a brilliant comment. <laughs> I really do love re listening to the episodes, Andrew, honestly, because of your wisdom. And I miss half of it because I'm, half the time I'm hearing you and trying to think of a good response. <laughs> I'm not fully taking it in. I'm like, dang, I missed a lot of the good stuff Andrew just dropped. That's
2: a coincidence because um, I like my wisdom too. So <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us. Hey,
0: it's still a humble comment because it's true. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, I, I'm known for my humility. I've told everybody about it. Um, there's also an echo to a Narnia book that will come uh, about 10 years from the time of this writing. Um, and when the children are traveling in Prince Caspian, they shoot a bear, mm. not a talking bear, and they put the bear meat in their pockets. Mm. And so while Baggins may have in his pockets, um, you know, something very different. um, <laughs> Yeah, here he is. And in some ways, I wonder if the, if the plentifulness of the groundweed isn't in some ways kind of like manna, mm-hmm. right? This is a, oh, yes. a, a, a world bread. that naturally produces sustenance mm-hmm. and that nobody need fear to starve. You know, um, the lectionary has been taking us through all the grumbling of the, um, of the Israelites. And, you brought us out here to kill us and we don't have any meat. We don't have any water. And the provision was always there. But in, in Mars, they don't even have to ask for it. It's right there.
1: We would like to apologize to any ancient Israelites that felt attacked by Andrew's recent comments, and we would (laughs) like this to be a safe space in future.
2: It's okay. The Israelites didn't have the time there, you know, getting attacked by Sihon and Og and the Amalekites and all the rest.
1: (laughs) Well, you mentioned the Hobbit, uh, and actually in a scene reminiscent from The Stairs of Kirithungal, ransom begins the steeper part of the climb. Mm -hmm. How does that go?
0: Well, I sort of answered all that in my previous comment.
1: Yeah.
2: It's tough. He's he's short of breath. It's insanely steep, hideously narrow staircase. Uh, Lewis a couple of times mentions the winding stair of thought. Um, It's a a metaphor that comes up for him.
0: Did you think, Andrew, that the the narrow staircase at all resembled like the narrow path in scripture? The narrow path leads to life, that it's sometimes difficult, but that's the one that leads to life or not at all?
2: Uh, the the only real connection um, is the the word narrow, and so mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he had that
1: in mind. Yeah, I would be careful about committing the sin of allegory as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that sin. So,
1: <laughs> it's a fun one. Uh, the the wise thing though
2: about that comment, Matt, is that it's it's almost always profitable when one hears an echo or you know or a quote or another word. That Lewis uses it almost always uh, signifies a pattern. That because he was this so such a remarkably cohesive writer, um, and that's part of why we're still talking about this book, you know. However many years later, almost what mm. seventy five years later, something mm. like that, eighty five.
1: I haven't done the maths, David. <laughs> and the the imagery is good to dwell on because you know it makes the things that we read in scripture even more vivid when we can connect the two things together. And throughout his ascent, it actually reminded me of what Lewis writes in Mere Christianity about, we never really quite know what we can do until basically our backs are up against the wall and we have to do it. If we're, if we're doing rock climbing and we've got an overhang that we have to get over the wall, then we have to get over it. The, The failure is not an option. And you really see him pushing through that as he continues to ascend higher and higher, as the air gets thinner and thinner and mm-hmm. you see his, his mind getting muddled up again, but he keeps coming back to that resolution that he made as he was leaving the water that, come what may, he's getting to meld on. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, I, there's two other things I wanted to quickly say here. There was, I really loved this, when it said, you know, he was looking for this road. He was given somewhat some vague guidance of where he needed to go and he wasn't sure if he'd be able to see the road. So he had this fear that he might miss it. And that's a natural fear. We're on this journey we might miss a turn in real life too. And I love they he said, but his fears were unnecessary. When it came, it was unmistakable. Mm. I, I was like, oh, mm. how many times mm. I have fears I'm going to miss, make the wrong decision, miss the door that's opening versus the one that's closing. And it's like, yeah, I believe in a good God that wouldn't give His child like a stone or whatever that scripture verse says. Again, that I'm paraphrasing. What father would give him some crappy gift?
2: If his if the son asked for um uh, bread, would give him a stone. That's the one. I'm always close. Is it asked for meat and gives gives him a serpent? Yeah.
0: other thing I thought here, the other comment I was going to make was, this is this this idea of circle of competence is somewhat used for the professional world. But I think there's truth in this spiritual world as well of of getting outside of yourself. So the circle of competence idea is like right now at this day you've got a core competency with your skills and let's say your your spiritual strength to go into the unknown. And we're called to go if you go a little bit beyond that, it stretches you, it creates a little bit of anxiety, but you grow. And they actually say you don't necessarily want to jump too far to the point where you're drowning. <laughs> and then you get you, you but you you are pushing yourself at the edge and you're feeling a bit of fear. And then you, you grow and you stretch, and that actually now becomes a part of your core competency. And then you can stretch further, and you can stretch further, you can stretch further. And I've always loved that analogy in life because it's not necessarily— there are some people, and saints can be called this of like, you just go from zero to 100 overnight. But typically <laughs> in life, that doesn't necessarily happen. God's calling you to do a ministry to start one thing, and then you grow it, and it gets a little more successful, and you go a little further and a little further. And you keep pushing yourself and you stay in this uncomfortable state. But I, I feel like this is happening here a little bit on this journey. You know, he he gets comfortable with Harasa, but that was a new thing, and now he's here and this is a little bit more difficult. Now he's going to the Sorns, but he's gained a little bit more competency, so he can handle this. And I I just feel there's also a truth to this journey that we're seeing.
1: Hmm. And he is scared. And as I mentioned, his mind is getting addled at the high altitude. He starts wondering why Western divine left him alone like this. And he even starts to wonder whether he hallucinated the throsa. Mm-hmm. But
2: even as he's, his mind is getting addled and we, we soon find out that it's because of lack of oxygen, he's getting closer to the stars mm. and closer to the unmitigated, unatmospheric entering into the, the, the solar system. And as we learned coming in and we learned in, in other, you know, in others of Lewis's writings, this getting closer to the stars is spiritually a good thing. I mean, it's, there's this kind of communication of the spheres, a music of the spheres and um, being closer to it is, is not a bad thing. And that's part of why, even though his physical body is letting him down, I think that um, uh, maybe some spiritual
1: insight might be forthcoming You know, um, like Matt said, it's going to be clear when it comes. And he does eventually make it. He finally arrives at what he recognizes to be the tower of all gray. But what does he find inside?
0: You know, it was, I appreciated it because he finally arrives. He finds what he's looking for. And it said the light within was unsteady one in a delicious wave of warmth smote on his face. This this just harkens back to, uh, diana Glyer and her just the poetic use of language in here delicious wave of warmth smoke mm-hmm. on his face it mm-hmm. was a firelight and then of course the sorn mm-hmm. more importantly
1: well before the sorn he sees something else i would i would also mm-hmm. say that this is another of those scenes where we see progressively as ransom starts realizing what he's actually looking at because mm-hmm. he sees two things one of them dancing on the wall on the roof was a huge angler shadow of a sawn. Yep. The other, crouched beneath it, was the sawn himself. Dun, da, da, da. And I think we all had notes attached to this that said, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for giving me credit to something I completely did not see. <laughs> By we all, David means Andrew and me.
2: <laughs> well, yes, David that's true. And well and and Lewis again in the Chronicles of Narnia has an echo of the allegory of the cave in the silver chair where the witch is trying to kind of undo the allegory of the cave. Hmm. So in the allegory of the cave, the man sees shadows and extrapolates something real based on the shadows. Um and so the real thing is out there and the shadow is all that we are seeing. When they're in the chamber in the silver chair the witch says, "Oh, they start talking about the sun and she says, oh, what's a sun? Oh, oh, you must have made up a sun based on this little light that you see. And the same thing. They talk about and the lion. Oh, what's a lion? Oh, well, you saw the cat. And so you must be imagining. So it's a flipping of the allegory of the cave. But absolutely here, I think that there's an echo. So he starts in Dante's wood and he ends in Plato's cave. <laughs> Not bad. Correct chapter. Yeah.
1: And it's all about vision again, and my unborn daughter's patron saint, St. Lucy, seeing rightly. And throughout this entire story, Ransom has started to see more clearly. And here, it's just beautifully poetic that the first thing that he sees of a sawn is its distorted shadow, the thing that had been scaring him this entire time. And now he's actually coming face to face with that sawn. And as we enter chapter 15 he's going to find out a little bit more about this creature that he's been so afraid of. Yeah. Well, and as is cumulatively and
2: culminatively um, clear until we have faces, vision and seeing, you know, is, is the ultimate thing. Go ahead guys. But it's not until she, she climbs the mountain, she goes to the valley, she sees something. And it's when she kneels that she actually can see, you know, can, can see the house of the God. So
1: Yes, seen clearly.
2: I just just want to constantly remind Andrew,
0: the kneeling thing came from David Bates in that conversation.
1: <laughs> That's okay. Do you remember that? Do you remember that, actually? I'm actually not course? sure if it's the kneeling or the veil, but either way. Oh, no,
0: it's 100% the kneeling. I know this. It was the, by the river one when she sees, and, and Andrew's like, notice kneeling is humility. And I, and I remember it struck me because, Andrew, I mean, I didn't know you at this time, and you're the scholar and stuff. And you're like, Huh. I'm going to take that and not give you credit.
2: Okay. Well, and see, the prophecy see. was true.
1: <laughs> it was my insight. Well, speaking of insight, the uh, saun Aubrey, nice. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, he he deduces something about ransom immediately. What does he work out, and how does he work it out?
0: By pure logic, he's from the silent planet. Yeah. Gravity, all this stuff—he wouldn't be able to handle the circumstances here if he was from Paralandra and these other places. And so, by process of elimination, he's like, "You must be from Thulcondra."
2: Yep. Uh, but even before that, he had no idea what might be coming next. But he was determined to carry out the program. Mm-hmm. So there's another further commitment, even in 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 the face of his his fears. Obedience. Yes, he finds out that he's from Thulcondra, and also that Thulcondra has
1: some properties, right? It does. But actually, before we even get to Sulkandra, uh we, we hear about another planet, Blundandra. Which planet do you think that is? It's Saturn, right? I don't think it is. I think it's Jupiter. No, it's Jupiter. It's Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I need to look up the names again now. <laughs> but I didn't have those, you know, I should get a new tattoo with all
1: the names of the planets. On. <laughs> I think that'd be a wonderful idea. But yes, he concludes from the gravity of those those different planets and the heat on those different planets uh, that Ransom has to be from the silent planet, Solkendra. And then before they actually enter into their main conversation, Ransom encounters his first real piece of technology on Malacandra. What is it? It's a scuba mask. (laughs) Yes, it's a scuba mask. He's basically got a respirator, uh, something, a cup that uh, the swan tells him to smell it. And then he discovers that he can breathe much more easily. And he asks him if it's oxygen, but of course, you know, that's an English word that means nothing to a sawn. Yes. By the way, thanks to the silentplanetfandom.com,
2: Neruval, Lurga, Glendondra Malachandra, Thulchondra, Perilondra, Viratrilbia, and Arbol.
1: So there are all of the seven planets. Mm -hmm. I will paste that graphic into our show notes if you would like to take a look at them and memorize them because at some point in the future, we will be having a uh, a, a fan (laughs) quiz. quiz And I can guarantee you those those are going to be some of the questions. (laughs) That's great. Now that Ransom can breathe a little bit more easily, they begin introductions. He asks him, are you all gray? And he says, yes. And then he asks Ransom what he is called. And he explains his race is man. And so the Hrosser call him Homan. Uh, but that his own name is Ransom. And the Sorn doesn't seem to have the same propensity for H's as the Hrosser. He calls him man. Mm-hmm. But he does call him Rensum, Which is also <laughs> rather reminiscent of Mr. Tumnus' butchering of uh, oh, spare um and wardrobe. spare Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So so if he had the propensity for ages, he would be called a H-Sorn. <laughs> that probably wouldn't work. How would you describe the thorn's physical appearance? Because it does change quite a bit from our initial impression.
0: How about I'll give you the short answer and then the long one. Okay. Giant meets ghost meets goblin meets gawk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's a gawk?
0: <laughs> I wondered the same thing. I didn't feel like looking it up. I figured you would, David. <laughs> I'm on it. I'll give the long one while you're on it. Um, Here's what he says. It was sitting on its long wedge-shaped buttocks with its feet drawn close up to it. So think of like a kid sitting on the ground with the knees coming and putting them around it. Except the Soren's legs were too long for that. Like these were huge legs. Its knees rose high above its shoulders on each side of its head, grotesquely suggested of huge ears. And the head down between them. Rested its chin on the protruding breast. The creature seemed to heave either to have either a double chin or a beard. Ransom could not make out in the firelight. It was mainly white or cream in color and seemed to be clothed down to the angles in some soft substance that reflected the light. So I genuinely picture, and from what I've seen online, I mean, this is a massively tall creature, mainly via the legs, in a bit of a distorted face and potentially what we actually envision aliens look like, long-legged <laughs> aliens.
1: My summary would have been big bird but white.
2: I think that, and and this is the trouble that um, you find with um, the various different covers. And so um, our friend Gordon Greenhill has got the disordered image and he's got all the different covers of all the different Lewis books. Marvelous, marvelous website. And there are so many different images that illustrators try to use for the uh the creatures in this book and i don't find any of them convincing so maybe our friend Brittany white could read carefully the defi- <laughs> the, the the descriptions of the Hrassa and the the sorny and the fifth and uh and and see if she could do a, a reasonable mock-up based on because i always have trouble kind of imagining um uh, picturing what lewis is describing i've got a bad visual imagination anyway <laughs> but did you discover what a gawk is you know, I the the origin of gawk is actually from Old Norse, which would make sense, but it, it I only find really the verb or it, a gawk is somebody who stands around shyly. So I should probably look it up in the uh, in the OED and then see what that has to say.
1: Okay then. Or
2: a clumsy stupid person or a lout. That's what Merriam-Webster mm-hmm. has to say.
1: I think it's it's definitely related to Ogre, given the way that you talk about somebody gawking at somebody else. It's usually mm-hmm. uh, a bit stupefied. But let's move on. So they've done introductions, and, of course, since uh, he's a very polite sawn, he offers him something to eat and to drink. What does Ransom get offered? Some of the usual vegetable foods of
2: Malacandra, and <laughs> he also... Gets a drink from a uh, from Puddleglum's
1: uh, Puddleglum's bottle. Yes, they have fun drinks. The storms as well. They can, they might be the philosophers, but they they still know how to party. And he also discovers that they have a version of cheese, oh. which comes from those space giraffes, which we encountered right back at the beginning of his flight from the Hanakra. It turns out that the sawns are shepherds, and we found out that they drive the creatures uh, down into the valleys to feed and then bring them back to the, the caves at the end of the day. And I loved this line. For a moment, Ransom found something reassuring in the thought that the sawns were shepherds. Then he remembered that the cyclops in Homer applied the same trade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well...
2: And then the shepherd and the milk, and I just can't stop thinking about Luke Skywalker um, (laughs) and the blue milk, and we'll just stop right there. But it's nice that he has some hospitality,
1: and they have so much that's in common. Mm -hmm. And and Ransom returns once again to address the question of power dynamics on the planet. Basically, who's Mm -hmm. in charge? What does he learn from this thorn?
0: I said, I was going to leave most of this to you and Andrew because I messed up last time and got a few things wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that's the fun for
0: us. <laughs> yeah. I will say this. It sounded very similar to the Harasa story. I mean, it was like he was trying to be, oh, why are, aren't they mad that you use the forest? And why do they let you do it? And it was, it was very similar. Like, well, this is just how it works. And they have this and we have this. And it was just very objective of fact. It didn't seem to be very much ego-driven comments, but just like, yeah, they're this, we're this, it's this, it all works out. I got that sense at least.
2: Well, and some of what's happening is that Ransom still is trying to impose his own frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And how could you not, right? That's how you make sense. You can't until you see patterns that you recognize, but he's still trying to say, okay, your society must be like our society. And he's very suspicious of the power dynamics because power is almost always used to corrupt, right? And manipulate and commodify in our world. But power is not. And so they are much more balanced intraspecies. And they're also much more in balance with their, with their spiritual structure. So we'll find out about Oyarsa soon. But they are in communication with their Oyarsa. Our Oyarsa wants to kill us. And so <laughs> he's carrying over some of this diseased and fallen thorny world. Um, into his expectations of the, of the structure of this one.
0: Hmm. You know, There was an opportunity for him to have a little fear enter in here when he goes, the, the Harasa know nothing except about poems, fishing, and making things grow out of the ground, which was an opportunity for his brain to be like, oh, shoot, I put my trust in the fact the Harasa said I should come up here, but they know nothing. <laughs> Nothing's like a missed opportunity there.
1: Well, we also actually learn a little bit more about uh, Oyasa. We know that he doesn't die, he doesn't breed, And he is the one of his kind who was put into Malachandra to rule it when Malachandra was first made. And his body is not like ours nor yours. And it says it's hard to see and the light goes through it. And Ransom says, so he's like an Eldil. And we receive the response, yes, he's the greatest of the Eldila who ever came to Ahandra. Mm -hmm. So he he is an archangel. This is something that has been hinted at. And in the guests that we've interviewed, this is how they've typically described him. I don't know that I would call him an archangel
2: because in the end, he's, yeah, he is the head of, he's the head angel Mm -hmm. uh, of the planet, but he's the head angel of just one little planet in one little solar system in one little galaxy, you know, in all of the universe. And so when the scripture talks about powers and principalities, you know, so I don't mean to be, uh, to be um, pedantic, but it's in my nature. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yes. I the, the... What do you think?
1: No, I think I think that's fine. And I would also caution people against trying to apply the nine choirs of angels from Saint Gregory onto this system as well. Mm-hmm. He's basically a spiritual creature that sits on top of the rest of the Adilla, mm-hmm. and this then leads into a discussion. Well, what are the eldilla? And the saun is surprised, or at least partially surprised, that there aren't any of these Adilla on our earth what do we learn from the rest of that discussion because we get into some physics and some metaphysics and we talk an awful lot about light mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: this felt a lot like mere christianity when he's attempting to describe the trinity it's like he was attempting to describe being at multiple place, multiple places at once this idea of speed and speed of movement and if you could be really rapid maybe you could be at multiple places at once and it was to be honest I didn't reread it many times to try to understand it I was just like oh, I'll skip over this but
1: uh... <laughs> well I did reread it multiple times trying to make sense <laughs> of it uh, my best explanation for it was it's like the the flash the uh DC yes. superhero he can travel so quickly that he appears to mm-hmm. be everywhere at once mm-hmm. he's not but he's just traveling so quickly that it just appears in that way hmm. Uh and isn't it interesting that the most significant creature
2: in this world is transparent, but the most significant
1: creature in heaven um is solid, right but it also depends upon your point of view because mm-hmm. they they appear to us to be able to move through walls because they're so that they're, they're so transparent mm-hmm. but it's actually because they view the walls uh as so infirm yeah yeah yeah
0: in in, in you know David, everything you said is correct there, it depends on your perspective, but i'd also say and I could be wrong here, the more proper perspective is the one that they're more solid and everything is more um, insubstantial. If we're thinking through Lewis's typical theology that the closer you get towards the one, the more substantial you become. And reality is a hard thing. So they're they're hard and everything is soft. But yes, from our perspective, it feels like they're like a light Mm -hmm. ghost that's going through everything. But I think how we view it is more incorrect um, than what's, Actually, the case would probably be how I would say that.
1: The line is here. To us, the eldil is a thin, half-real body that can go through walls and Mm -hmm. rocks. To himself, he goes through them because he is solid and firm, and they are like cloud. Mm. Yes. And I wonder how much modern
2: physics Lewis had read, because you know there's a lot of space in the solids, right? Mm -hmm. All of the space between the electrons and the protons, and there it it has the uh, isn't that what i mean i never took physics so i defer to those who have but isn't that true isn't there a lot of space in what we think of as as solid things Mm -hmm. yes good so yeah he's of a different nature and i'm not comparing him to the ghosts in 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 great divorce (laughs) not at all because we'd have to drink if he did that (laughs) to lewis's second best book cheers
0: Yeah, we should have a different game where if Andrew references his true best book, The Great Divorce, something different happens.
1: I like the idea of coffee for one, uh, scotch for the other, and we'll just see what state we're in (laughs) at the end just to see who quoted which book the most.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If we referred to to your favorite book, what you wrongly consider, and Lewis never considered his best book – If I ever referred to it as his best book, you can drink whatever you want. I'll drink Hemlock. (laughs) I'm drinking the whole
0: bottle. There you go.
1: There was one section here that did make me chuckle when Ransom isn't quite sure whether or not we actually do have these creatures on Earth. And he says, well, it dawned on him that the recurrent human tradition of bright, elusive people sometimes appearing on the Earth, Albs, Divas, and the like, might, after all, have another explanation than the anthropologists had yet given. It's really interesting that he doesn't list angel among that list, and I think it's because he's hiding his hand from less observant readers as to what these creatures actually are. Okay, so a deva is uh, one of the divine beings in the Vedic period
2: in Zoroastrianism. So it's kind of an Indian angel or god. Mm-hmm. I wonder what an albs. I wonder what albs are. I know what albs are because i dress in one
1: i thought as a clergyman you would know such a thing <laughs> <laughs>
2: well an alb is i mean it comes from albus white and so i wear an alb every sunday
1: but i don't think this is what lewis means no it's basically like an elf from my understanding it's in from german folklore i think it's also spelled an alp a-l-p okay but either way, it's it's almost certainly a supernatural yeah. creature that is rather akin to an angel. I just think it's rather funny that Lewis is purposely not using the most familiar word to his readers because he doesn't want to make yeah. it too obvious what he's doing. Right. So the et-
2: etymological family is elf, elb, like you said, an elp. So, yeah, got it.
1: Yeah, he's not tipping his hand. Mm. And in this conversation about how they move so quickly, we also discover that their sense of place isn't quite how we would imagine. It's it's not like Oyasa is here on the planet. He is in the heavens as well at the same time because he's moving so quickly. And in that way, we see that uh, the other Oyasa from the other planets, they have a communion mm-hmm. of which our planet doesn't actually have that communion because we have been put in a in a quarantine because... Ah, Oyasa rebelled.
2: Well, and we think about movement again that, uh, that you know, and Lewis does this in Perilander, then an, an angel would have to be twisting and moving and circling in the same way that the planet is spinning and it's orbiting and it's swirling in a galaxy. So it would take a lot of complex movement to look like it was standing still if, if we ever really saw an angel. So, yeah, that may be some of the why it's terrifying. When they, sh- when they usually show up.
1: And all this advanced physics and metaphysics is kind of melting Ransom's brain. And he's also just climbed a mountain, for goodness sake. Yeah. Uh, and the text says, Ransom's mind shied away from the problem. He was getting sleepy and he thought he must be misunderstanding the sawn. Mm-hmm. But before they go to, go to sleep for the night, the sawn shows Ransom something. What does he show him? Hmm. Ah, this is a nice moment.
2: He shows them Thulacondra. He shows them Earth. Yeah,
1: he has uh, a Malachandran equivalent of uh, a nice big telescope, although he doesn't quite understand how it works. But once again, he doesn't recognize it immediately. And we mentioned Mm -hmm. right back at the beginning when he saw the moon and he thought that it was Earth, he was confused because he hadn't had the advantage of seeing all of the planetary photos that we today see very often we know what the earth looks like but it takes him a little bit longer to recognize it and also the very fact that the the globe is flipped that the north pole mm-hmm. is at the at the bottom of the, the screen so to speak he saw perfect
2: blackness and floating in the center of it seemingly an arm's length away a bright disc about the size of a half crown And Lewis will always, when something gets a little terrifying, not always, but usually when things are scary in the Chronicles of Narnia, he'll throw in a very modern quotidian, everyday, um, ordinary analogy. And so here he is, freaked out about the thorn, freaked out about, you know, suffocating, close to the stars, trying to figure out what the constitutional physical makeup of of an angel is trying to figure out the ranks of them, trying to figure out the governmental system and getting super tired after being exhausted, you know? And so it's getting a little overwhelming. And so when he sees the disc in the sky, he sees a half a crown. Mm -hmm. And so there's an echo back and it's in some ways a foreshadowing that he'll get back to a place where they actually use half crowns. They don't use them anymore. I don't think. Mm. No,
0: no. Do you think that last sentence when he says Mm. that is my world, it was the bleakest moment in all his travels. At first, mm-hmm. I was wondering what it meant by that because it didn't add a lot of context to why. And then I was hypothesizing, which maybe this is the obvious answer and why it took me a second to realize this. It was just a longing for home or the comfortable or the familiar or his family or his friends or whatever it was. like. Because at first, I was like, why is this the bleakest moment? But then I thought maybe he's realizing how far away he is from where he was from the things that used to bring him comfort and pleasure and joy and how far into the unknown he is and how, I mean, I, I, that's what I thought it could be this a bit of a nostalgic reminder a little bit. And that was just a bit heavy for him to be able to see, but I wasn't sure.
2: I, I wonder if maybe he's homesick. Yeah. And also homesick. But then when he gets there, he
1: realizes how lonely he'll be there as well. Hmm the very first time I visited the States by myself with the anticipation of getting a job here and moving here, I'm going to say the point at which I was most homesick was when I phoned my dad. And mm-hmm. we just had a casual conversation about you know the weather uh, and what I was going to do the next day. And having that contact with home was one of the things that tugged at my heart the most. And there's a sentence just before that final line where it says, when he's looking at Earth and he says... It was there in that little disc, London, Athens, Jerusalem, Shakespeare. There everyone had lived and everything had happened. And there, presumably, his pack was still lying in the porch of an empty house near Stirk. I'm not 100% certain if it's just homesickness. I mean, he's also found out the status of his planet over his time here in Malacandra. He knows that this might be his home, but it's one that's in isolation from the rest of the heavens. So hes he's maybe feeling sad because of that. But I think probably the principal reason that it's a bleak moment is he sees how far away his home is. He's also his emotions have a bit of a
2: alcoholic megaphone put upon them, <laughs> right? Because he's had a couple, and so he's tired, and and it's he sounds like a he sounds a little maudlin after a drink or two, and it's not even the kinds of drinks we know. The first thing that he wants, and it's a giveaway, but. You know, when he gets home, the first thing he does, he goes to the pub and he orders a pint, (laughs) right?
0: You know, the bleakest moment, it just dawned on me, wouldn't the bleakest moment be when Harasa is killed, Huyin or Hayoi or some of these other ones? Like, I'm kind of surprised this is the bleakest moment. I feel like Hayoi dying would be a competitor.
1: I think it certainly could, but this is also compounded. Have you ever had a day where things just get worse and worse and worse? Your bleak yeah. moment is at the end when the last thing happens. it's like, goodness sake, this day has not gone my way. Well, and read the very next sentence. Ransom awoke next morning with the vague feeling
2: that a great weight had been taken off his mind. So uh, this is where he, it's kind of his low point. And also halt. If you're hungry, if you're angry, if you're tired. If you're lonely, if you're tired, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
0: and I got to say too, in my life, there's been two or three moments I can distinctly remember where I was actually genuinely overwhelmed. And I just kind of broke down for maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Sure. And a little, good little cry, talked to yeah. a loved one and then woke up the next day and it was fine. Like it was just all past it. But there was that one thing that the straw that broke the camel's back, you've been on this long journey, you've been grinding, you've been doing all this stuff. And then just something hits you and you're like, dang, it's just overwhelming. I agree.
1: And that's a nice segue into today's question of the week. Uh, In the chapters that we've looked at today, both of them, we did it, guys. Well done. (laughs) Ransom is determined to get to Meldalorn despite all the distractions, despite his fears. How do you keep your resolutions in the face of struggles? How do you tell your moods where to get off? And how do you train the the habits of faith in spite of them?
0: Yes, it's a good question.
1: Please feel free to email us, contact at PinesForJack.com, use the contact form on the website, or just comment on social media, or if you have access to it, our Slack channel.
2: Well, and I know Matt's up against a hard deadline, but I don't want the episode to close. I'd be remiss um, if I didn't mention, which I should have done at the top, that I had a lovely conversation with Laura Byron Scott, who is the vicar at Holy Trinity Headington. She's the pastor of, of Lewis's home church. And they've got some exciting things underway. Uh, I'll send David a video that we can post with a tour of the church. And they're thinking about doing maybe some online things and doing some fundraising things for their building. And so I um, had a wonderful Zoom to Holy Trinity uh, just this just this day, and and told her all about Pints with Jack, and so she immediately subscribed. So <laughs> uh, so we've got a new
1: listener now. Wonderful. Well, I hear the call for final drinks. So I'd like to thank all of our listeners, Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah 1, Deborah 2, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy.
0: Can we get a Deborah 3? Let's just get a Debra 3. Call Come on. There's a third Deborah <laughs> out there. Yeah. Go at the lowest tier and we'll name you in there.
1: <laughs> Deborah 3, someone. Well, we pray for you all every Tuesday in particular, uh, offering the prayer request from our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, why don't you hike up somewhere high to a hill or a nice lookout and talk to someone interesting. As always, thanks to our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll. And please join us next time. When we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Haraka? Her- N- Nordic? <laughs> Norak? Norak? What was it? Norak?
2: Norak. Noraka.
0: Norak. Ah, oh, there we go. Norak. I have such a bad memory. It's insane. <laughs>